Dress, the History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dress listeners, today we are picking up where we left off earlier this week with the sartorialist, Scott Schumann. So if you haven't already listened to part one, you might want to check that out um, because we're basically just going to launch straight back into where we left off. Right. And that's actually the point when Scott was telling us all about some of the very cool collaborations he's done as a sartorialist. So without further ado, we're just going to jump right in. More from Scott on a yacht. (laughs) So I went on a thing with, um, I think it was Laura Piana, and we were on a yacht, like a racing yacht in the north of Italy, like close to uh, Genova. Mm -hmm. And I'm on one of those fast sailboats and it's tipped up like not totally on its side, but like at an incredibly <laughs> high angle. And I'm holding on to the side of the boat with one hand and I'm shooting the camera trying and water is coming in on my feet and, and I'm trying to capture the action, trying not to be thrown into the, into the water. Those were really fun collaborations. Those are the ones I still really enjoy. And, and I'm sure in all of these travels, because you have literally shot all over the world, what a gift, first of all. And, and you made your dream come true when you said, I want that job. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you also probably have so many incredible stories of the people that you've shot. Do you have any really special moments or interactions that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Um, well, you know, like I mentioned, I did a book on India mm-hmm. after my, after doing three books kind of all around the world, books that captured images from all around the world. I thought it'd be fun to do a book that captured one place, but very intensely. And so a couple of years ago, I started working on this project of, of shooting India in a way that nobody else had shot, where you would see not only kind of the rural places of people who live very simple lives, but also the young, cool kids going to music festivals and I went to sporting events and, and tried to go all around the, the continent. So just all of those things, whether it was, you know, the guys that I, were, I was traveling with, my guides, you know, I learned so much from them, the guys I would meet, or the guys and girls that I would meet while I was shooting. There was one guy when I was in Kolkata, and his job, he worked at a uh, vegetable market. And their job is these, these trucks would come in from the, from the countryside full of vegetables, and kind of wrapped up in these humongous, like the size of a table, bales. And it was, you know, all kind of fruit. And so guys would get together in groups of like four or five, pick up that giant thing, put it on their head and walk together, like really grouped together, five or six guys, walk it into the market to the stall where that stuff had to go. I would ask myself why they didn't break it down out there and walk it in six different guys as opposed to everyone carrying that one giant thing. But that's how they did it. And there was one particular guy there who was, you know, young and so beautiful, such beautiful face structure, beautiful shoulders in such good shape. And um, 
he had a t-shirt on, had his, a, a tank top on, and it said, so who's the pretty girl then? <laughs> and, and I looked at this guy, and maybe it was my imagination, but I don't think it was, but he really was a bit more effeminate than most of the other guys there. And I really wondered, because he didn't really speak English very well, hardly any of those guys did, and my guide wasn't with me at that time. And I really wondered, you know, if this guy was gay, which is not something that's very open in India, especially in that area in Kolkata, and if he was gay, and if he wasn't kind of telling, if he didn't know what that tank top said, and wasn't kind of messaging it to the guys around him, knowing that they would not be able to read it. He's kind of telling, he's kind of putting it in plain sight, knowing that they'll never know. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if that's the truth, but I kind of feel it probably is. And um, so I think it's just moments like that, these really kind of interesting um, characters that you find that you just never know, you know, what you're going to run into. I mean, that's the thing that keeps me shooting every day is, is just going out in the world and, and having those experiences. Yeah. There's a couple of stories in your books. And oh, by the way, that image that you were just talking about is actually in one of your books. So our listeners can can see it for themselves. But also too, I got a huge giggle about the fact that glitter seems to come up in your work again and again and again. There's a couple of really cute stories about that. Would you share them with us? Is there? Yeah. I hate that, that must have been what I said, right? That I hate glitter. There was one where it was an older woman and she wasn't wearing any jewelry, but she had just put like a tiny little bit uh, on yeah, like yeah, 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 on yeah. one of her ears. And then yeah. and then there was another one where you you were shooting somebody from behind. He was kind of backlit from behind. Yeah. And and you, you didn't really uh, notice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The guy in India, this young kid in India. And I was in, again, I was at a, at a market and this was in, this was also in Kolkata. Kolkata really doesn't have a youth culture. You know, it's not like you go somewhere and you see all the kids hanging out at a Starbucks or anything like that. It's a very simple place. It's like the Detroit or Naples of India, very beautiful and very artistic, but very simple. And um, so I'm at the market very early in the morning. I see this young kid, nice haircut, beautiful face. And there's just something very photogenic about him. And I asked to take his picture and the sun is kind of behind him, but it's, it's beautiful way. This kind of backlit photograph I like to do. And, um, and I was talking to him for a moment, but I didn't realize that he had this kind of glitter on his face until he turned to walk away. And I thought, Oh crap, I shot that the wrong way. I should have shot him facing into the sun. So you could see the glitter. But by that time, cause I had been looking at the photograph, he was gone into the crowd and I thought, Oh crap, I really missed the shot. But then I kept my eye open from I was there at the market for another two hours. And I ended up finding him again. And I stopped him again. And I said, do you mind if I take a picture of you? He said, okay. And so this time I turned him. So he's facing the sun and put his chin up a little bit. So the sun would really reflect off the sparkles. And after I took the photograph and I knew it was right, I said, kind of motioned to him because he didn't speak very much English. I said, so what's the, the glitter? He could tell what I meant. And he looks at me and he thinks and he says, rave. <laughs> and I was like, rave? You, you, that's from a rave? Where are you going to a rave here in Kolkata? Like, I thought, this is a guy I want to party with. Um, <laughs> and that's just it. Like, I think there's parts of India, you know, that, you know, from the West, we have an idea of what India is like. 
And it's so much more complex and fun and different. And, um, and so I was really happy to capture something like that or capture, you know, some of these kind of transgender young people and, and mix that with people that live in the countryside or that have a lot of money or very little money. And, you know, I don't know if the book's any better or any worse than anyone else's book on India, but I'm happy in the sense that I think it's different. I just think it has a different point of view. I also think that has a different, slightly different feeling than some of your other books as well. There's something that feels a little bit more intimate um, in the India book, I would argue. And that came out last year in 2019, right? Yeah, that was 2019. That was September 2019. And um, it's a little more intimate because I shot that, you know, on the street. It was basically all the street. I went um, to a couple of fashion weeks, but I didn't get a lot there. And I went to some, I went to a horse race place. I went to some music festivals, but most of it was just really on the street. And the way I like to shoot is to get close and really feel that kind of intimacy. And when I shoot on the street here in New York, or I think those photographs are a little bit more intimate. Like the second book's called Closer because there are a lot more portraits in that. Um, and I think even with a portrait, a close portrait, you still get a very good sense of the person's style, you know, the way their haircut is or makeup or whatever. Because a lot of people want to kind of say, oh, you know, this is just street style and this is about what they're wearing. What they're wearing is just a third, you know, the, the light is important. The way they hold their hands, to me, the hands are the most important thing in a portrait, you know. The way they hold them is always so different, always so much um, more unique than what I could ever imagine. So a lot of times that takes just shooting and shooting and letting them get a little bored to where they finally take a position they're comfortable in because now they're kind of over the novelty of this guy's taking my photograph. So you have to be a little ballsy to let that happen to where they kind of get to the point where they're kind of like, they take their natural position. But yeah, I was very happy with how that worked that I was able to do that book in 2019 while still working on the menswear book that came out this year. So there was a time when I was, you know, spend half the day working on an India book and the other half of the day working on the menswear book that came out this past September during the pandemic. But I love that. I love that challenge of really having two very different projects right on top of each other. Yes. And of course, that most recent book is called The Sartorialist Man, Inspiration Every Man Wants, Education Every Man Needs. So would you tell us a little more about your concept for that book? Yeah. You know, it's something we touched on earlier that um, for me anyway, you know, I love fashion, but at a certain point, I just want to look nice in my clothes. You know, I, I, I just... I guess I've, I've in, appreciate fashion, I enjoy it, but I just want to look nice now that I'm 54. And um, so I do think there's a way of kind of, most men's fashion books are very kind of tailored and very suit driven and very classic driven, which is fine. But, and they kind of make fun of fashion a little bit. Oh, it's so frivolous. Oh, you're gonna buy it and you're gonna hate it in six months, which isn't really true. All the fashion stuff I've ever bought, I've loved. I've only not liked that I didn't figure out how to wear it quite right, or it didn't look quite right on me. I didn't not still love that piece, but I thought there was a way of doing a book that you could mix, you know, tailored guys with Dries guys, with Valentino guys, with vintage guys, and do it in a way that was really respectful to all of them. And a lot of the best pages in this book, I think really show maybe two guys wearing a blue jacket in very, very different ways. So that's one big element. But then there's also, you know, I don't really call them rules, but more kind of suggestions and ideas, like how to fit a lot of different kind of body types. You know, if you're big and muscular, if you're tall and skinny, if you're short, or some kind of combination of those two things, 
There's back third of the book is all about sustainability, how to buy the clothes that, you know, are good quality as, as, as that are as good as you can afford. And then how to maintain those, how to iron, how to hem your pants, how to sew a button back on things that the fashion magazines used to show, but don't show anymore, but done in a little more modern way, talking about resale. You know, I have a whole section or a page on the book called appreciation for the altruist, Mm -hmm. you know, who a lot of people might call their tailor, their local tailor that alters their clothes and, and being willing to pay a little more money to those guys so they can have nicer places. They can have better equipment that, you know, you shouldn't always try and pay the, pay the cheapest amount for alterations because that's what you're going to get is not very good alterations. So I think there's a lot more to the book than just photographs. Jenny, my wife, did the illustrations, I think, which I really feel for her because I was so on her back about like the curve of a collar or the lapel. <laughs> so many men's fashion books are just so, they spend all the money, I guess, on the writer and maybe getting old photographs of Cary Grant and then really skimp on the illustration. So I was lucky to have an in-house wonderful illustrator and she did such a great job, I think, you know, cause usually she does much more freehand where I was really on her back to like, men's is so precise, you know, to like at least illustrate the lapel, the way a lapel rolls, you know, for a guy that's really into tailoring is so important. And I look at the work she did on that book and I think, all right, that's pretty good. <laughs> I'm actually really glad you brought up sustainability. That is a huge platform of our show. We talk about it again and again and again and in all different various permutations of the notion. And in this past May 2020 issue of GQ, you actually gave an interview during COVID. You talked a little bit about kind of this, you know, imposed break in your work. And you also talked a little bit about what you felt style was at that moment. And you talked about reworking your closet, what did you mean by that? I found, you know, especially working in this book where you're really thinking about clothes and about style and fashion. And, and I had realized that I think like a lot of people, I, because I love fashion, I love, you know, Prada and Valentino and all these things. I would buy things that I loved, how beautifully they were designed, how beautifully they were made, but they didn't necessarily look good on me. And so one of the first things we did when pandemic, when we were stuck at home, I really went through the closet and said, I love that. I'm just not going to wear it anymore. And then figuring out, you know, do I give that to a friend? Do I put it in resale? What things would go to um, maybe even museums? I have some beautiful tailored suits. So I might send those to me that were Savile Row tailored suits, might send those to some museums or, but then really deciding, okay, I've got the time, I'm going to look in the mirror with Jenny's advice and say, what actually do I want to, as now a 54, at that time, 53-year-old man, want to wear and feel like, okay, this works with my lifestyle, this looks good on me, it's comfortable, I can do my work in it. So it was really about the way the world was before, you know, at least for me at that time, you know, I was traveling all over the place, I loved fashion. I was, you know, going to Milan and Paris and London and a lot of times shopping and buying things without thinking too much because I knew I loved that thing. I was being a little impulsive. And so now I think it's pulling that back some and not being quite as impulsive or understanding, okay, I'm buying this because I love it. I might wear it once, but 
you know, it's just something I want to have. And maybe later, almost like a photograph, you know, like you don't really get anything from a photograph except emotional happiness. And um, so I think reworking the, the wardrobe was really about that, you know, kind of saying, this is what looks good on me. And these are just the things I like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I love that that is like written into your most latest book as well. Yeah. And I think a lot of guys want to know that, you know, they, a lot of guys want to hear you. One of the things I thought that was really strong that I wrote was that, you know, for some guys, you know, they want to nest, they want to be fashionable, but they don't know how to do it. You know, they, they don't know how to put color together. They don't know how to mix patterns and they're always asking their wives or their significant other, does this work? Does that work? Just don't do it. Don't put yourself through it and find like a nice uniform that you feel comfortable in and I mention how some of the most stylish guys in that book and that I know wear kind of a uniform, whether it's Armani, whether it's George Cortina, whether, you know, oh, there's a guy in Japan, um, Mr. Kakuta. And I, I use him as an example. You know, he basically always wears navy, maybe with a little bit of gray. And it's a uniform, although it's still very fashionable. It's not always the same pieces, but he always wears basically the same thing, but in a really cool cut or a really cool updated way. And, and he, I'm sure he doesn't get up every morning and say, oh, what am I going to wear? He knows what he's going to wear. He feels comfortable in what he's going to wear. And he always looks great. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really the key is, you know, he's not taking big chances on, ah, oh, do I want to buy that purple shirt? Do I want to, he knows what he looks good in and he looks great every day. And, and I think when you get to a certain age or a lot of guys, they would just rather do that. They don't know, they don't need to be fashionable. They just want to look nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I am reminded of, um, a, a, do you know the work of contemporary artist J. Morgan Pewitt by any chance? Oh, it sounds familiar. She did, she did a whole like, like a year long, like art project where she kind of like wore the same wardrobe over and over and over every day for a really, really long time. I love her work a lot. My next question for you is you are on the streets almost every single day. You're witnessing firsthand these really kind of tiny incremental shifts, even daily shifts in in fashion. So I'm hoping you might play fashion futurist with me because obviously we are in a very painful moment of history um, on so many different fronts. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have some thoughts on what the role of fashion is right now in this moment, and also where do you think it's headed? Yeah, well, you know, up to now, I think you're, there were a lot of incremental shifts, you know, like guys went from wearing more kind of dress shoes and design styled shoes to sneakers, very stylized sneakers. That kind of happened slowly. Women went from wearing, you know, skirts and more kind of designed pieces to, you know, their kind of Lululemon tights, you know, always looking like they're going to or from Pilates class. That became (laughs) a full all-day Saturday look. Um, So there were little things like that. But then the pandemic, I think, we're really going to mark as a major, you know, seismic shift in how people are dressed. Because when you've been stuck at home for eight months, and I was just reading something Alan Cummings was talking today in New York Times, he said, I haven't worn pants that snap or button in eight months. Mm-hmm. And I think we're just at a point now where, you know, people have lived happily in a very different kind of wardrobe that I think it's going to be hard for people to go back to that. I think you'll have a niche of people who want to go back and wear a suit and really dress up. But I think this is going to be one of those things where, you know, tailored clothes 
will not disappear, but they will have to figure out how do we, like I have a lot of stuff I'm wearing. Um, well, this is slow wear at the top, but um, you know, a lot of the pants I have from Uniqlo have these kind of hidden um, elastic bands inside the pants. So they look like regular pants, but they have a nice stretch to them. You don't even have to wear a belt. They're super comfortable. And that's Uniqlo. But like, I think designer brands and tailor brands are going to have to figure out how to incorporate that into their clothes because you know, the zealots of it will always want this kind of old school thing, but all their young customers who have grown up wearing stretch from Uniqlo or sweatpants are going to want that in their tailored clothing and tailors and designers are going to have to figure out, okay, how do I make the clothes even more comfortable? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and sports, you know, guys playing sports and women playing sports more and all of that. When I was doing the men's book, a lot of my research was finding that um, you know, sports is always the thing that changes the way people dress, you know, and the, back in the day, it was when people were doing more horse riding or when golf came along and these other sports started to really work the way they dressed for that worked into their everyday wardrobe. And I think in the pandemic, you're seeing us dress in a more sporty way, you know, in sweatpants that came from sports or sneakers, um, track suits or hoodies, I think, which I don't think is bad. I just think that because this is happened now kind of quickly, it's going to be up to the designers to figure out how to take this kind of silhouette, the idea of a hoodie or the idea of a sweatpant and make them beautiful. Mm -hmm. You know, right now they're so, like I find a very hard time finding people that are dressed like that to shoot on the street because they're dressing in such solid colors. A lot of time it's this kind of very flat, almost kind of nylon-y, kind of plastically looking close. So there's not much surface texture. Um, there's not much pattern or, or subtle, interesting color combinations. So I think the, the way of dressing is not bad. I think now the design world has to catch up and say, okay, how do we take this new way of dressing and make it beautiful, mm-hmm. you know, with interesting color combinations, with texture, with doing knits in a new way that won't bag out at the knees and all this kind of stuff. So I'm excited for the future. I think it's, I'm excited for my photographs because I think there's definitely going to be a pre-pandemic sartorialist and a post-pandemic sartorialist. And I'm, I'm excited to see how the design community says, all right, this is how people want to dress. How do we now make it beautiful? Yeah. Oh, and um, I actually was on Norma Kamali's website the other day looking, and uh, I think she's one person that is doing that right now. Um, she has a lot of like some of her, you know, stretch ensembles that are in tweed, um, like tweed prints or, or, or motifs and herringbones and She's doing some really, really interesting stuff. She's even incorporated some of those um, pattern motifs into her classic sleeping bag coats. So um, that was really fun. But honestly, I can completely attest to exactly what you just said because I had a doctor's appointment yesterday. So I live in Brooklyn and my doctor's in the city. So I got all dressed up and I put on a little cat suit and I put on like a corduroy Everlane dress that wasn't too tight. But then I was like, oh, what coat do I have that matches this? And I put on like platform boots, you know, and then I I, I threw on this Vivian Westwood really tailored wool coat over it. And by the time I got home a few hours later, I was like, what is going on? I was like, so, I had on like a leather backpack and I was just like, I felt like I had just been carrying all this weight on my body around all day and really in the, you know, scope of things, the ensemble that I was wearing yesterday was 
what I would have considered a more comfortable ensemble in the past. It's just that exactly what you just said. It's that's the last eight months of, you know, right now I'm wearing a vintage embroidered Mexican dress. This is what I walk around in the house like all day with no shoes on. So things things are changing for sure. I mean, I think like imagine, you know, when you look at like old Vogue magazines from like the 70s and those kind of jacquard knits and you know, those beautiful kind of muddled kind of colors and things and the cowl necks and all of that. Like, you know, the 70s was, was great with knits. And imagine how great that would be done in new kind of fabrications and modern knits and modern ways of doing that with the modern kind of technology that we have. I think there's a lot of things that we could pull from the past. You know, like even, you know, all those jackets in the 80s, you know, those shorter jackets that you would buy at at the mall, at uh, merry-go-round and places like that. And, and that can be redone in a way, like right now, I think, you know, so many of these hoodies, they're nice, but they're kind of boring. You know, they don't have much going on with them. That's very interesting. So I do think we're at, we're right at this breaking point where there will be a whole new wave of designers that see these pieces now, the hoodie and sweatpants in a whole new way that we're not even thinking about yet. That's going to be pretty exciting. I think I, I think to, to not accept it or to say, ah, oh, that's just too casual, that's not dressing, that's not fashion, is to not believe in the ability of creative people to take that and say, I can make that beautiful. And that's what it's always been. You know, people said that about when people start wearing golf clothes more in everyday wear or any of the examples. You know, Chanel made her dresses out of knitwear that was basically thought of as underwear out of Jersey. So it's always happened. We're just now having a major, major break right now where you'll, um, I think it's going to be great. Like we do kind of have fashion at a low point right now. When I was going to the shows, you know, I was going to the shows right until the, the pandemic broke and, um, and it was getting a little boring. You know, you felt like people were looking for a new direction and no one knew quite where to go. This is the answer. And I think what fashion is going to look like after this is going to be totally different and interesting and exciting again and new again, hopefully. I also love the fact, I mean, of course, we were playing fashion futurist, but I also really love the fact that you love fashion history, too, and are quite knowledgeable. Um, you actually have an entire alternate Instagram feed. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Yeah. So I started as a as a goof. As a, It's the same way I started Sartorialist, as a goof, called Old Giorgio Armani, because I'm a big Armani fan. He was my hero when I was growing up. And... Um, it's funny, he was my hero and Prince was my hero. So I don't know, they, they couldn't be more different, but at the same time, both very creative. And I think it's funny because, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s, Saint Laurent was kind of in the position that Armani holds now. I could not imagine that young, cool kids wanted to wear Saint Laurent because to me, he was just this kind of old-fashioned guy and the clothes looked kind of dated and didn't really look today. And I didn't really hear people from that time, why they liked Saint Laurent. What was it that made it cool? And, you know, there was pre-internet, so you couldn't just pull up easily images to understand why people loved it. And I think that's kind of the position Armani's in now. You know, he's still a great designer, but, you know, the period that he had from when he opened in 75 until about 1990, people can't really imagine how important he was. And I've always wanted to do a debate with, with anyone <laughs> anyone that he was or is the most influential designer to date 
because, you know, you can throw out Chanel, you can throw out Dior, any of them, they meant nothing in menswear. So that's my first big trump. You know, so you'd have to come up to someone like Prada, but Prada does men's and women's, but it's not really affected except for like a backpack or some accessories, the way everyday people dress. They didn't, you know, you, you couldn't go to Marshall Fields in Chicago and buy Prada, you know, an everyday person where Armani had his black label and he had his white label and you could buy, and most people in America only knew the white label. And so you really felt like you were buying Armani off the runway. Mm -hmm. It was a version of what he did on the runway, but you know, he's like the classic old school designer. There's not many left that made his name on designing and selling clothes. You know, Dries Van Noten is one, uh, Comme de Garçon and Yoji are another two. And um, Rick Owens is another one where they, they've made their business on designing and selling clothes. And um, to me, Armani was the first one to do that. And so this Instagram is just to kind of show um, the Armani that I grew up really loving. And even a little before my time, you know, when he was just starting, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, he was a very important, what they would call an industrial designer. He was a stylist for a lot of different brands before he started his own brand. But I think, you know, for fashion school, it would be fascinating to teach him as a case study of how to succeed. You know, the, one of the problems I think we're having right now is you see it in sports also. We want young people to be so good at something so young. And it seems like kids right now are feeling like I've got to come out of fashion school and become a designer right away and become a big hit. And the media is really liking to jump on to these young people. Oh, they're the next big thing. Where you look at someone like Armani, someone like Dior, they didn't start their own business until they were in their 40s. You know, someone like Yves Saint Laurent is very, very unusual. You know, he's a one in a one in a lifetime, one in a generation. But you know, someone like Armani was a trained, skilled, successful designer before he ever started his own business. And that's what I think a lot of young designers aren't doing yet: is saying, "I think I've got to learn something." They're 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 learning something in school, but they don't really have much industry knowledge. And so when these things start coming up, they're not prepared for it, or they don't really understand, you know, how do I sell the clothes? How do I account for fit? How do I deal with people overseas? Like, it takes a while to learn that and to get the things. And um, I think he's a great case study of all the subtle little things. Like I did a post the other day that he was the only one in the 80s, I think any, anywhere, not just in the 80s in Milan, where he did so many little subtle things that led to his success. So like, back then, Whenever you saw a picture from a runway show, you knew it was an Armani show, an Armani picture, not because you saw the name, but because the walkway was lit from underneath. He had the only runway that was this kind of glowing runway that was lit from underneath. So as soon as you saw the picture, you saw, oh, that's Armani. You know, he had a way of visually stamping all of the photographs that came from his show because his place was so unique and it was consistent. Right. You know, he there before he started his own brand, he would have maybe 20 pages of ads in Luomo Vogue, and they each and it was different brands, and they all said buy Armani. So it was Hilton buy Armani, and it was suits, and it was Montadoro um, outerwear buy Armani, and all this. So he had built his name as a stylist before he ever went on his own business. So I think uh, it's a fun thing to kind of share that, and I hope. Um, young kids, not just young kids, I people that are my age look at and say, oh yeah, that's right. That was so great. That was so, <laughs> cool. Ads were so cool. And, um, but then young kids go and say, oh, 
that was a smart way to do that. Or, oh, I see all these subtle little things you can do that it's not about how many followers they have. It's not about how cute they look in their own clothes, but about really the craft of design and being really good at something, at fit, at the, that's what I was always interested in. Not the glam of fashion, not the, all the other stuff that to me seems very French. Um, sorry to the French, but like, I guess that's why I always was interested in more Italian design because it seemed much more about craft. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always tell like the students that, you know, just as important as a fashion designer are your designs and your concepts, so also is your development of business acumen. You know, so many designers have such incredible visions and creativity, but without that other side, unless you land on your feet really, really early on with um, a really great sponsor or partnership of some sort, that, that that is key. You have to have both of those sides. So yeah, that that his years and years of experience in the industry really kind of paid off. Well, you know, he had his, um, he had his, you know, it's uh, Laurent had his guy, Mark Jacobs had his guy and, and Armani in the beginning had, um, his partner, his life partner, Sergio Galliatti, but he died in 1985. And so apparently at that time people were like, oh, well, your business guy just died. What's going to happen? And because Armani was already so professional and knew the business, he was able to just take that step, and he, to this day, is still the 100% sole owner of his billion-dollar business. And I know a lot of people that work for him or have worked for him, and they say he's amazing. Now he can sit down and focus on you know this issue, this issue, this issue that you would think would be outside of his grasp or out of most designers' grasp. But not even that, you know, he's got an incredible homeware business, you know, Armani Casa. Only Ralph Lauren has been able to do, I think, uh, an entire really, really great interior design business along with fashion and makeup and everything else. So I think he's a great case study. Mm-hmm. And of course, all this, that whole concept of design, fashion designer as lifestyle brand started by Paul Paré in the 19-teens. Our regular listeners will know that story as well. He's Mr. Hobbleskirt. Of course. Yes, yes, yes. He's like, I freed women's from the corset, but I shackled their legs. It's kind of a yeah. paraphrase of one of his famous quotes. Yeah. I think where people found more about those designers. I've got all, you know, there was a great book by Rizzoli that about Paul Pare. They've got the um, Chanel one, the Balenciaga. People knew what the real true Balenciaga was. Uh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, for sure. And we've done episodes on all of these designers already. So, um, you have been supremely generous with your time today, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. I have a favor, perhaps, to hit you up for. And that is, in your opinion, would you tell our listeners what makes the difference between a good outfit and a great outfit for you? For me, I think um, I think it has to have something you remember. You know, it's something that if you see it and you close your eyes and you say, oh, that was a great color. That was a great color combination, that was a great silhouette. You know, you don't, rarely do you remember everything. Do you remember the shoes and the hat? You kind of, you kind of remember it in your mind's eye and there's always one or two things that really pop out. So just like with the photograph, I think a great outfit you should be able to see on the street. It's like when I'm walking on the street and I see someone far away, I don't have great eyesight and I'm kind of saying, what is that look? And I'm kind of focusing on two things and as they come closer, Either I think, oh, that is good, or no, that's not so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think being able to look at an outfit, put it together and say, this is about 
what. Okay. If you can answer that pretty quickly and it's pretty obvious, then I think you've got a good look. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add before we sign off for the day? No, I'm going to spend the rest of uh, lockdown listening to your back. I'm, I'm the 140th episode. Well, that's just our full-length episodes. Um, we also do mini-sodes on Thursdays, so it's a twice-a-week show. And so now we've done over 200 episodes. The first season um, in 2018, we only did one episode a week. And then season two, and we're now we're at the tail end of season three. We've, we've been doing two episodes a week. So Wow. Okay, well, I know how I'm going to spend the rest of lockdown. <laughs> As we go back into it, oh no. Yeah. Hopefully yes. it won't be too bad. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully there's a, an end in sight. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And you know what? Maybe we need to do an Armani episode together in the future. Ooh, yeah. Let me know. Let okay. me know. Okay. Yeah, or, yeah, or maybe even a, a tailored one. I think that's something that's a world that a lot of people don't know about. They don't really appreciate how wonderful and equally design accomplished these guys are. You know, someone like Luciana Barbera, someone like people talk about design and, and um, you see someone like Luciano, what he does in a subtle way of mixing stripes and pet. It's to me, it's just as beautifully designed as anything you would get from Prada or anyone else. It's just different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Something like that might be kind of fun too. Yeah. We've been talking about doing like a Savile Row or, or like a tailoring, contemporary tailoring episode for a while. So I'm going to put that on our, on our okay. list yeah. for season I'm four. I'm here for you. Okay. <laughs> thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Scott, thank you so much for sharing your journey with us and for taking the time to be with us on Dressed for two episodes. April, as you know, 2020 marks the 15-year anniversary of the Sartorialists. In many ways, that feels so recent. But on the flip side, Scott's body of work has been incredibly influential in how fashion is communicated around the world. Fashion journalism was really birthed anew in the mid-2000s, and the Sartorialists is one of the pillars of that new wave of fashion media. We are so grateful for Scott's time and insights. Yes, and, and I wasn't joking when I was chatting with him about doing a tailoring episode. So oh, for sure. hopefully this shall happen. And we will be taking a break as dressed over the holidays, but stay tuned for season four, which will launch in mid to late January. And don't worry, we're, we're not ending our season with this episode. We have a, a few more to come, but I'm just managing your expectations that potentially another episode with Scott will hopefully come in season four. Well, on that note, that does it for us dress listeners. May you consider the impact of your outfit on the street next time you get dressed. We love hearing from you all. So if you'd like to reach out to us to suggest a topic, you are more than welcome um, to DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast or to, of course, email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram. Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you on Thursday. Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. From our podcast from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.